So this morning we are continuing our series in the book of First Peter. We began there a few weeks ago when we launched our Sunday services as a new congregation. You can go ahead and turn with me there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your seat or the seat next to you. We welcome you to turn with us there as well. It's on page 1015 in those Bibles, First Peter. Um, as we've been going through the book of First Peter, we've been returning again and again to this idea of exile. And we're going to be back there today as well. An exile is simply someone who is not home and not able to return to their home in the time that they would like to. And throughout the whole Bible, the story of humanity is the story of a people who are in exile, uh, who had a good created home that God had made with them, but who have since run from him. And as a result, we live in a world that we often experience in such a way where God feels distant, where we feel we don't belong, and the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's why, because we're exiles. But in the midst of that, Peter, so far in this letter, has given us great hope that God is a God who is redeeming all of this, restoring it, who has a good plan to bring with him a restored creation, to restore us as his people, and to restore our relationship with him when Jesus returns. And so that everyone who places their trust in Jesus knows that there's a new home coming for me, that the world as it is right now, while I live here now, isn't my ultimate home. My ultimate home is in the future. And yet in the meantime, we still live here, and we live among people who don't share that same hope. Many of you may be here today, and if so, I'm thrilled that you're with us and that you're willing to explore the claims of Jesus in community. Um, But one of the differences is that Christians look forward to this hope that they know is coming, that their true home is yet to come, whereas others don't share that same hope. And so for Christians, they're, they're viewed in the book of 1 Peter also as sojourners, And a sojourner is someone who's not home, but is dwelling in the homeland of another. So since Christians know their new home is coming, for now, we're on others' turf, basically. We're we're foreigners here, sojourners in the land of another. And our purpose here, we saw last week, is to live such honorable lives, to live in such a way that the people around us would see how good that new home is that we're looking forward to and that they would want that for themselves, that they would actually begin to glorify God as well and look forward to that same new home that we're looking forward to as Christians. It's to give them a taste of it by the way we live to say, this is what it's going to be like when God restores everything. And what we're going to see today is that in marriage, our purpose is the same. In marriage, you live so that your spouse glorifies God. You live in such a way that they see your conduct and glorify him as a result. And how do you do that? Through your life, you give them a picture of what Jesus is like. But what's interesting in this passage that we're going to see is that the way God has set up marriage is that the way husbands show Jesus to their wives is different from the way wives show Jesus to their husbands. Wives, you use your freedom to submit to your husband. And husbands use their power to show honor to their wives. Now, I have to give a disclaimer at this point, because what I've just said probably sounds a little weird to you. Um, I I just said that wives should submit to their husbands, if if you didn't catch that. And I am going to say that throughout this sermon. I'm going to say it with a straight face. And I'm going to say it not only believing that it's true, but that it's actually a good thing. And I understand that that sounds weird to many of you. And in a sense, that shouldn't be surprising to us. 
So I mentioned that Christians are sojourners on earth. And part of being a sojourner is that the things that you do and the things that you believe often seem weird to the natives. If you've ever been someone who's lived for an extended time in another country, or you've known someone who's living for an extended time here in America but isn't from here, there's some adjusting. There's some things they do at first that just seem weird. One of the things I love about my family is that I have cousins who have married people from other countries. So, for example, my cousin Laura married a guy named Davil, who's from India. And when I first met Davil, there were things about him that seemed weird to me. For one, he doesn't eat any meat. He just eats vegetables. Uh, and for a guy from central Pennsylvania, small town central Pennsylvania, it's like, well, that, that's a total anomaly, you know. And I'm still, I'm still working to figure it out, but we, we've grown, you know. Um, and I understand there's good reasons. So... On top of that, my, when they first got married, they had their first ceremony in India and had a traditional Indian wedding. And I saw pictures of my uncles from the wedding. And the outfits they wore to the wedding seemed weird to me. It looked like they were wearing like a full-body bathrobe with nothing in the front and pointy slippers. So it doesn't strike me as the kind of thing you would wear to a wedding. But what do you do with that kind of thing? Do you just off the bat say, hey, that's weird. I don't want to hear anything more about it. Don't put me near it. No, you suspend judgment, right? You say, okay, I understand. You're from another country. It's going to take a little adjusting here. And as I've done that with Davil, I've grown to love him and really appreciate his presence in our family. So if I'm already starting to look like I have a full-body bathrobe on and pointy slippers when I talk about wives submitting to their husbands, I would just ask you to consider suspending judgment for the next 30 minutes or so as I try to explain to you why I believe this is not only true but a good thing. Because as Christians, what we start with is we start with the Bible. And that means we don't feel the freedom to change the things that we find in here. And the reason I'm going to say the things I'm saying today are because I really believe they're in this passage of the Bible that we're going to look at. And one of the beauties of being a church that preaches through books of the Bible is that we turn the page, and whatever's there, we preach on it. And so this is what's next in in our First Peter series. And we believe that God has something good for us in it. So I would just ask for your, um, your willingness to suspend judgment over this next half hour as we look at it together. And for some of you who are single, you may even feel like, hey, I'm not judging you. I just think this is totally irrelevant. Like, I'm single. Why do I need to hear this stuff about marriage? Well, statistically, you're still more likely to be married than not in America. Most of you will probably be married on, at one day. On top of that, you have a really important role to play in the lives of your married friends. Often single people are actually better at seeing the things that married couples are doing wrong and being able to speak into those things on their behalf. Uh, we don't believe that marriage is ultimate. We don't believe that if you're single that you should repent by getting married or something. That's, that's not the message of the Bible. Jesus wasn't married. Most of his disciples weren't married. You can live a totally full, God-honoring, joyful life without being married. But marriage is one significant thing that God has put in place for us to glorify him. So that's what we're going to look at today. So join with me if you would, and we're going to read this passage, and the things we're going to talk about today are the things that this passage actually says. As I use words like submission, as I talk about these things, a lot of notions are going to come into your mind of what that must mean, and what I want to ask you to do is just look with me at this passage and look at what is it actually saying about it. So 1 Peter chapter 3, that's the big numbers, we're going to read through verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we're going to start, we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to start by looking at how wives are to show Jesus to their husbands by using their freedom to submit. And then we're going to talk about how husbands show Jesus to their wives by using their power to honor. And I'm going to be upfront that we're going to spend more time on the wives part, not because I think that's like the more important one or because you wives in here really need to hear this more or something, because that tends to be the one that sounds a little weirder to people. If I say husbands should honor their wives, most of you are like, yeah, they should. When I say, wives, submit to your husbands, most of you are like, whoa, (laughs) what's wrong with you? So we're going to spend a little more time there. Um, And that's where this passage begins. So it begins with these words, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So we have this idea here of submission or subjection. And the rest of this passage fleshes out for us a bit what this is to look like. And it especially is helpful because it gives us an example. It gives us the example of Sarah in verses 5 and 6. It says that Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So part of submission is this idea of obedience. It's this idea that within the marriage relationship, while both partners are equal, they each have a role assigned to them in this institution of marriage that God has set up. And the husband's role is to bear primary responsibility to lead the relationship in a God-glorifying direction. And so that means the buck stops there. When you have two people in a relationship, there has to be a kind of tiebreaker vote when consensus cannot be reached. And what this passage is saying to wives is to extend to your husband the opportunity to have the tie-breaking vote, to be the one whose decisions are ultimately decisive in the relationship, and to bear the final responsibility for leading the relationship in a God-glorifying direction. So what that looks like is when the husband does make a decision, God calls on wives to show Jesus to their husbands by obeying, by going along with that decision. But not just going along with it in a begrudging kind of, fine, since I'm the wife, I have to do that way, but to do so respectfully. Verse 2 says that the way that their husbands will be won without a word by their conduct is through their respectful and pure conduct. And you see, Sarah, the way she obeys Abraham is she calls him Lord. She has this kind of honorific, respectful title that she addresses Abraham with. So it's more of a, yes, of course, I'm glad to go with you. In Sarah and Abraham's life, one of the first places this came out is when God came to Abraham and he told him to leave his father's country and the country that he was called to and to to go on to another area. Throughout Abraham's life, God is directing him to do things in fulfillment of the promise that he's made to him. And Sarah responds to that by willingly saying, okay, I'm willing to go with you where God is actually leading us to go as you lead us in that direction. So you can think of submission or the subjection that this passage is calling for as simply respectful obedience. Respectful obedience, that's what God's calling for. Now, what's the objection to that? The objection is, that sounds oppressive. That sounds like the kind of thing that men have been using for years to keep women down, to keep them in subjection, to keep them on a lower rung of society, to keep them dependent on them, so that they can abuse them and do wrong towards them. This is the kind of verses, the kind of thinking that's been quoted to keep women out of jobs, to keep them out of money, to keep them from voting um, in in our society. 
And I want to spend a, a fair amount of our time responding to that, because I think that's a really important and significant observation. And the first thing I'll say about it is that it's largely correct, in the sense that these passages have been used throughout the years in abusive, sinful ways. Well, as Christians, we, of all people, we should not be the people who pretend that everyone does everything right. A central part of our confession as Christians is that we're sinners, and that people don't do what God calls them to do. And in fact, with passages like this, they have been abused over the years to wrongfully treat and oppress women. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that's not the case. But what I do want to suggest to you is that abuses don't negate the possibility that there could be a right way of using these things. And I think we all intuitively understand that. There's things that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but that may be abused. For example, in the creation story of the Bible, God gives humanity this responsibility to care for the earth. And that verse has been abused to justify raping the environment and using it just for personal gain. Whereas in its original intention, that verse is actually there to call us to care for the environment and use it in a God-glorifying way. So we don't want to throw out that principle just because it's been abused. And similarly here, we don't want to throw out a good gift that God's giving us in marriage simply because there have been abuses. So without brushing over them, I want to suggest to you that there can be a good way that this can be used. So let's consider together what kind of submission is this really calling for. Well, the first thing we can observe is that in this passage, submission is to one's own husband, not to men in general. So this isn't saying women can't be bosses in the workplace. It isn't saying that a woman couldn't be a leader within the government. There's going to be situations where a man should actually biblically submit to a woman. For example, if you have a job and a woman is your boss, you don't get to throw this verse in her face and say, you can't tell me what to do. You're a woman. She's your boss. You submit to her. That's your role in that human institution. It's just saying that within a marriage relationship, there's one man that a wife is called to submit to, and that's her own husband, as it says in verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands. Secondly, this is submission for the Lord's sake. So in verse 1, it says, The reason you do this is so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is consistent with the whole purpose we've seen that our lives on earth exist for. Wives don't submit to their husbands because they're a lesser being of some kind, because they're less intelligent or less educated or less capable of making good decisions. I can speak from personal experience on this because my wife is significantly better than me at a number of things. She's gentler, she's kinder, she's better looking, I can prove it. She's, um, she's a better decision maker than I am, actually. She's more decisive. She's better at uh, stewarding our finances and knowing when the good purchases and when it's not. She's even better at hammering a nail than I am. And yet this passage still applies to her. And so that's another reason I think this isn't just unique to the cultural situation. Sometimes when you read this, you maybe think, like, well, that was just back then when people were really archaic and stuff. But back then, there were probably wives that were just as much better than their husband as mine is now. And this passage, you know, this command is still issued. And so the the purpose in it isn't an inferiority submission. It's not, well, since I'm so much lesser than you, I better submit. It's for the Lord's sake. It's because my purpose in life is to bring glory to God. My purpose is to see other people see Jesus in me. And that's what I get to do 
by willingly submitting to, to you, my husband. I get to show you what Jesus is like. That's why you submit. It's not an inferiority. It's for the Lord's sake. And so the implication of that is that it's also not absolute. If you're submitting for the Lord's sake, if you're submitting to see your husband glorify Jesus, there's times when you actually won't submit to him. For example, if your husband wants you to sin, if your husband wants you to do something that dishonors God, then you can't submit for the Lord's sake anymore. You can't lead your husband to glorify God if you yourself aren't actually glorifying God. And so there's times where you will disobey. There are also other authorities that are set up over your husband as well. He's not an ultimate authority. Your husband is not Jesus. He doesn't get to act like and pretend that he is. For example, if your husband is committing a crime against you, if he's abusing you, call the cops on him. There's a government that has authority over your husband. If your husband is sinning against you, you should confront him personally and call him to repent. And if he doesn't repent, meaning actually change the way he's treating you, you should take another witness from the church with you to confront him. And if he still doesn't repent, you should tell the elders and we'll kick him out. There are steps you can take here. And there are appointed means in place to address grievances if you are the victim of abuse in your relationship. But even in that, there are ways to do that that respect the human institution of marriage. There are ways to do that respectfully. So the appointed channel is call the cops. The appointed channel is tell it to the church in, in in a godly way. The appointed channel isn't tell all your friends. The appointed channel isn't throw it back in his face every time he does something wrong. The appointed channel isn't persistent nagging and disrespect to get him to act the way that you want him to act. There is a respect that you can even give in the midst of that. And the default is still respectful obedience, but not because you're weaker, not because you're inferior, but because you get to show Jesus to your husband in this way. And that brings us to the next thing I want to say in response to this. This is a submission from a position of freedom. So uh, something that's significant about this passage is it begins with the words likewise, which means it's continuing a thought from, from where we came just before this. So to see the kind of submission it's calling for, we have to do a little rewind and review a little bit of what submission in general looks like. So look back with me at chapter 2 and verse 16. It says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And we talked last week a little bit about there's an irony here. He's saying live as a free person, as God's servant. And servants aren't normally people we think of as free. But what he's saying is that when you're God's servant, you're actually free from everything else. One of the things that's really um, difficult about reading a passage calling women to submit is it sounds like slavery, right? It sounds like we're putting women in this dependent position. And there's many cultures throughout the world where women really are in a position where they become totally dependent on their husbands because they have no way of gaining a living and providing for themselves without being married to a husband. And what that can do is it opens the door for incredible abuse because husbands know, without me, you can't go anywhere. So they can abuse them and and do whatever they want because the women have no other hope. And I'm really thankful that in America and throughout the West, there's been progress in that area where women now can receive job training and can go out on their own in such a way that you don't have to marry a deadbeat because he's got to put food on the table or something. You can actually live for the glory of God, marry a godly man, and if you're not married, be content because you have what you need. The problem is, if the only thing that is enabling you to be free of a man is, well, I can go earn for myself, for example, or whatever else you might fill in the blank, that thing can also enslave you still. 
So if you say, I'm never going to be a slave to a man because I know I can earn for myself and I can take care of myself. Well, now who are you a slave to? You're a slave to your boss. Because now you're depending on your boss to provide for you and your employers can actually abuse you and take advantage of you as well. What this verse is saying in chapter 2 and verse 16 is that when you're God's servant, you don't need anyone else. When you've been redeemed by Jesus and you know that new home that I talked about earlier is coming for you, when you know he's bringing grace for you, eternal grace, an eternal home with him where there's no abuse, where you will never go hungry, where every tear is wiped from your eye, there's just not that much people can do to you. What can they do? They can take your job. Okay, eternity with Jesus. What can they do? They can take your money. Okay, eternity with Jesus. They can take your food. Okay, eternity with Jesus. I'm not saying any of that stuff should be taken lightly, but what I'm saying is you don't actually need that stuff from an employer or from a husband. Your husband is not Jesus. You don't need him in an ultimate sense. And what that means is sometimes you can disobey him. Sometimes if you have to, if your husband is perpetually calling you to sin, you can say, no, I'm not going to do that, and you don't have to fear what he's going to take from you, if that's what obedience to Jesus looks like for you. But the question is, once you have that kind of freedom, once you've been set free as one of God's servants, what do you do with it? Now that you're free, how do you live? Well, one option is you can use your freedom to just do whatever you want. But verse 16 kind of, of chapter 2 here kind of uncovers that. It says that that's a cover-up for evil. If I use my freedom to just say, I'm going to do whatever I want, it's a cover-up. I'm not being free. I'm just doing the things that I already wanted to do and now using this new freedom, I have to do them. They're saying, if you're living as God's servant, here's what you're free to do. You're free to live so that others would glorify God. You're free to be directed by that purpose and that purpose alone. And that means as wives now, you can use your freedom to submit to your husband so that he will see Jesus in you and that he will glorify God. But if we get behind that, if we get behind this sense of slavery, I think there's a bigger picture challenge that um, this whole idea of roles gives us. And it's, we just don't like being told that we have a certain role. It feels like that's just getting imposed on us. Like, oh, so if I'm the wife, I just have to be the one who submits? Like, I never signed up for that. You know, why is it just because I'm a woman that I should be in that position? Or even for the husband, you know? Why is it that I'm the one who's supposed to take primary responsibility for the relationship? Like, I didn't want that responsibility. This seems like it should be more 50-50. Or even if my wife, you know, seems more gifted than I am in a number of ways, why shouldn't she be the one to take primary responsibility? And and in all this, these things, you know, the passage we looked at last week, we saw that if you're in a a country that's ruled by an emperor, you submit to the emperor. Well, why should I have to, you know? Like, I didn't elect the emperor, and um, I'm not, I was just born into this, you know? So there's this feeling that all this stuff is simply getting imposed on us. And so what we want is to be free. And we think the way to do that is to shake off all imposition, to get rid of any notion that I have to be something just because of who, the way I was created, to get rid of the idea that just because I'm a woman, when I get married, I should be in the submissive role, to get rid of the idea that just because I'm a husband, I'm a man, that when I'm a husband, I need to be in the leadership role. And that's why, in America, it's really popular to say things like, you can be whatever you want to be. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The problem is, you'll never actually be free that way. For example, let's say God made me to be a pastor and to do what I'm doing right now. Maybe you still aren't convinced of that, but um, bear with me for the sake of the argument. So let's say God made me to do this, but I say, no, I don't want to be this. You know, I, I don't want to be put in this box where I have to get up and f- talk to people each week. I want to be a basketball player. 
I would love to be a professional basketball player and just be able to use all my time to, to be a great basketball player. The, the challenge is, if you haven't noticed, I'm 5'9". I'm an average jump shooter. I'm a below average athlete. I'm not a great ball handler. There's not a lot that I'm going to do that's going to get me a job in the NBA. And if I think that's the key to freedom for me, is that I have to give myself to that, I'm going to give all my time, all my energy to something that God simply didn't make me to do. That's not freedom. That's enslaving. If I think I need to be in the NBA because I want to be on a pedestal and I want people to look at me in a certain way and I need affirmation, the problem is you're always going to live for something. And if you live for anything besides Jesus, it's going to enslave you. Only slavery to God can bring actual freedom. If I'm a slave to him, I don't need anyone to praise me because my life's about him getting praised. So I don't care if I'm on the front, you know, if I'm center stage in the NBA or something. I'm free to just be a guy who God's given certain gifts to and certain opportunities to and to just use those in the way that he actually created me to live. As God's servant, that's the privilege and the opportunity that you have. So what if instead of resisting and fighting the role that God has given us, the life that God has assigned to us, we said, I'm just going to accept it and learn how to do it really well. What if instead of me always trying to be an NBA player, I said, I'm going to take the gifts that God has given me, develop those, and figure out how to use those in a way that brings glory and honor to him. It's like if a fish, you know, you got to imagine a fish having ambitions here. But, you know, imagine a fish has the ambition of, I can't be a fish, I have to walk on land. So he's always trying to jump out of the water and get on land. He wasn't made for land. But if he stayed in the water and just said, I'm going to become a great swimmer, he could devote his time, his resources, his energy to doing the thing God actually made him to do. And as husbands and wives, that's the opportunity that we have. You can consider, as a woman, instead of resisting and fighting this role all the time, how can I use my femininity? How can I use the way God has made me to be an incredible picture of Jesus to my husband? And you're going to have to get creative with it. You're going to have to get creative with it because this passage doesn't specify for you what exactly it's going to look like. See, it's important in the Bible to always say, well, what's, what isn't it saying? There's nothing in here that says the wife should cook all the meals. There's nothing in here that says an obedient wife can't have a job outside of the home. She has to stay home with the kids. There's nothing in this passage saying the wife must fold the laundry, the wife must do the grocery shopping. Those are all very culturally specific things that are somewhat unique to 19th and 20th century America. That may be what it looks like for you in your family. And there's plenty of wives who have shown Jesus to their husbands in incredible ways by caring for their kids, by doing the laundry, by doing, taking, you know, buying the groceries, cooking the meals. Praise God for you if that's you. But I just want you to see that it, you're going to have to figure it out for your marriage. But the important thing is, how can you cultivate the kind of person that is respectfully obedient to their husband? And the way you do that is you cultivate the inner person. And that's why that's where this passage goes. In verse 3, it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's all about what you see your purpose as. If your purpose in your marriage is to be affirmed, and for many of us in romantic relationships, that's what we're after. That's what comes naturally. I want someone to make me feel loved, to make me feel accepted. 
if that's what you're after in your relationship, then you're probably going to go for the clothing, jewelry, hairstyle emphasis. Because you've looked around the world around you and the culture around you, you've seen the women who seem to get all the attention are the ones who physically look the best. And that's, that's accurate in, in the world more broadly. But especially for you single women, can I just encourage you that if you're trying to make yourself look good to get the right spouse, you're looking for the wrong spouse. You just don't want to be married to that guy. Like, he may seem fun, he may seem cool, he may seem like he can get you into cool parties or something like that and elevate your social status. You don't want to be married to a guy who's with you because you did your hair the way he likes it. That's a perishable thing. Notice the, the, the contrast here. It says the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. If you marry a guy like that, what's going to happen on the day when your hairstyle changes? What's going to happen when you start to look differently? When, like every human, your body changes? You don't want to be married to that guy. Don't let your adorning, don't let the thing you emphasize, the thing you live for, be your hair, your clothing, how you look. And you can tell if you're doing that by how you use your resources. If you find your time, your money, your energy, your stress always goes into how can I make myself appear well for others, you're probably seeking attention and affirmation from your relationship. But if you're a servant to God, if you have him, you don't need that. You're living for his affirmation now. You're living for his glory. You're living to see people view him as amazing, not you. And if you live for that, if that's what you want in life is to see Jesus made much of, because now you don't need it because you have him, the thing you're going to cultivate is this inner person. This inner person that's described here as an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, gentle and quiet doesn't mean wispy, passive, you know, my wife's loud, I love that about her, like, it's okay to be that. Um, These words in the Bible more refer to a peaceful attitude. It means you're not trying to stir up controversy all the time in your marriage. It means that when your husband does want to make decisions, you're not always bouncing right back at him, getting back at him, bringing up his past wrongs, always looking for ways to combat him and kind of assert your control over the relationship by fighting it all the time. It means there's this general attitude of, I want to empower you to be the leader. And in order to do that, you're going to have to talk to him. You're going to have to give him real, honest information about how you're feeling and where you're at with the whole process. But you do it all under the umbrella of respectful obedience. You do it all under the umbrella of, what I don't want here is a big fight. What I don't want here is to steal the decision from you and make you feel so guilty or so manipulated that you better do with the thing that I'm calling you to do and the thing that I want for our marriage. L'Oreal, my wife, was a really good example of this to me and a couple big decisions in our lives, like when we chose to move to Philadelphia from Texas and then when we chose to start this congregation here in the city. In both of those instances, she wasn't, well, especially when we chose to start the congregation down here, she wasn't on board from the beginning. There were things that she had real questions and real reservations about and part of her that just didn't want to do it. And so what she did was she told me that. She expressed that to me, which is really helpful for me as a leader. Like, I just need to know where she's at and what she's feeling. But she always did it under the umbrella of, ultimately, Mike, this is your decision. And I'm going to trust you to lead us where you feel like God is leading us. And ultimately, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be there. And that was an incredible picture of Jesus to me. And so that's the last thing that I want to, the last thing I want to say in response to this is that The reason you do this, the reason this is such a picture of Jesus is because this is how Jesus lived. 
Look at verses 21 to 25, again, back in chapter 2, for the kind of submission we're talking about. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is about the freest person who has ever lived, because Jesus is God in the flesh. And what that means is he really doesn't have to do anything. In fact, when we sin against him, when we disobey him and turn from him, all he really owes us, according to justice, is, is judgment. That's what usually wrong deeds call for. And instead of giving that to us, instead of using his freedom to assert his power over us, he comes to earth, he becomes a human, and he subjects himself willingly to suffering for you. It says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He doesn't have to do that. At any point in that whole process, Jesus is free to say, ah, you know what, I'm done with this eject button. I don't really like the suffering stuff. I'm just going to go back to heaven now and leave you guys to all kill each other. But he doesn't do it. He stays. Jesus stays. He uses his freedom. He has the freedom to do anything, and he uses it to submit, to subject himself to suffering. So that through his suffering, you women in this room, you wives, could serve God and know him and be so free that you could use your freedom for the same thing, that you could use your freedom to show that kind of love to your husband so that without a word even, he would be one to glorify God as well. Through Jesus, it's only because he was willing to suffer that any of us glorify him. And what he's saying is because we now have that, because you have him, you can now live that way with your husband. And that's why... In verse 5, the only way you can do this is to hope in God. It says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God adorn themselves. And in verse 6, it says, you are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Submission is scary. If you really say to a husband, I'm going to give you the freedom to ultimately have responsibility in this relationship, that is scary. That is frightening. And Jesus was able to do it because he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He knew that even if this person does wrong, even if this person makes a bad decision, even if this person hurts me, I have a judge in heaven who judges justly. I can hope in him through this. Whatever wrong decisions your husband makes while you're showing Jesus to him, God will use it for good. God will be with you, and he will bring to you an eternal home with him. As you hope in that, you can show Jesus to your husband by using your freedom to submit to him. Okay, now let's consider how husbands show Jesus to their wives because it's going to look different. In verse 7, we see likewise again. Uh, So you might expect every time we see likewise that we would see be subject because that's what we've been seeing so far. But there's a different command now given to husbands. He says, likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So the likewise here isn't a command for husbands to be subject to their wives, but it is a command for them to be subject to their role 
saying, just like your wife, you're getting a role assigned to you that you didn't necessarily choose for yourself. And your role is to lovingly lead your wife. And when you're in the leadership role, that does confer a certain level of power to you. You do have the power to make the ultimate decisions in the relationship. But the interesting thing here is what is the husband called to do with that power? We know what husbands often do with that power. We know what men often do with that power. But what's the husband actually commanded to do with that power? He's commanded to use it to serve and to honor his wife. And this is how he does that. Husbands, you do this first by living with your wife according to knowledge, or this passage says in an understanding way, but a more kind of wooden translation of that from the original language is according to knowledge. It's saying you have to know God. You have to know Jesus, who he is, what he's like, and what he wants for your marriage. You have to know your situation, the world around you, your circumstances. And then you also have to know your wife. You have to understand her Understand what she's like. Understand what her passions are, what her dreams are, what God's calling her to as your spouse. But the interesting thing about knowledge is that as you gain more knowledge, you also gain more power. When you get to know your wife and you understand her, you'll learn things about her. And one of the things you'll learn in this passage is weakness. You'll learn some of her weaknesses. The woman is referred to here as a weaker vessel. Again, don't read stuff into this passage that's not there. It's not saying they're inferior or dumber or bad decision makers or anything like that. It's just not it. It's much simpler, okay? Sometimes the Bible's just really straightforward. In general, women are less physically strong than men. Now, I know some of you women in here work out and, you know, you can bench press and squat and all that. I do CrossFit, so I go to a gym where there's women that are, like, really strong, can lift heavy weights. I love it. It's really cool. But even in the CrossFit world, we have, uh, we call them prescribed weights. It's like the way you're supposed to do a certain workout at, RX for short, prescription RX. Um, So, you know, the RX weights and the prescription weights for the workouts, there's still one for men and one for women. The strongest woman in the world is going to be stronger than the weakest guy in the world, but she probably won't be stronger than the strongest man in the world. So just in general, men are stronger than women, okay? Now, if you know that and you understand that, you have a certain power over your wife. Because now the husband knows I could use that to get my way in the relationship. And husbands, as you learn about your wife, you're going to learn weaknesses she has. You may learn that she's very self-conscious about her physical appearance. And now that's something you can use to hurt or control her. You know that if you insult her or you say certain things to her, you can really hurt her in a significant way. And that's scary. That's why these things are frightening for women. But again, what do you do with the knowledge in this passage. You show honor. You show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So instead of using your physical strength to beat up on her, you use your physical strength to beat up on anyone who tries to hurt her. Instead of using your knowledge of her self-consciousness to hurt her, you use your knowledge of her self-consciousness about her appearance to compliment her, to tell her how beautiful she looks tonight and how you're so glad that you're with her. That kind of honor is going to come out in the way you speak to her. It's going to come out in the way you talk about her when other people are around, the way that you build her up, the way that you platform her. And the reason you show honor is because she is an heir with you of the grace of life. This is the ultimate statement in this passage that the husband and the wife are equal in God's sight. Because when it comes to the most important thing in life, that new home that's coming for us, they equally get it. When Jesus returns, bringing with him the restored earth, there's not going to be like a throne for men and then a lesser spot for women. 
Men and women in God's kingdom will ultimately be equally heirs of the grace of life. The life that's coming is both of yours. That's the equality in this passage. And the only inequality in this passage that it affirms is that there should be an unequal amount of honor given within your marriage. And the one who gets more of it should be your wife, not you. Men, use the power you have, use the knowledge you have to honor, to lift up your wife. And ultimately, it's for the same reason that wives use their freedom to submit to their husbands, because that's exactly what Jesus has done. As God, Jesus is not only free, he's powerful. And Jesus, at any point in his life, had the power to just call down the armies of heaven and zap all the people that are trying to kill him. And instead of using his power to punish you and me for the ways that we've wronged him, for the ways that we've screwed this up, he used his power to save us. He used his power to die for us. So that those of us who don't deserve honor, who haven't lived honorable lives, could be honored in Jesus' kingdom. He laid down his honor. He laid down his power so that you could be honored. And as you receive that, you can lay down your power to honor and to love your wives. Our purpose in marriage is the same as it is in the rest of life. It is to live in such a way that others will glorify God. Wives, you do that by using your freedom to submit to your husband, by showing them how Jesus did the exact same thing. And husbands, you do that by using your power to honor and to lift up your wife. And as we do that as a church, as we become the kind of church that loves one another in that way, it says in verse 7 that our prayers will not be hindered. This seems like a weird like add-on to the passage, but throughout the Bible, the, way our prayer, the things we pray for are to see God glorified. And if you think God's going to be glorified in your life, but you're not using your power to honor your wife, you are sadly mistaken. We are a church that has come together that is praying for God to do big things through us. But if you want to see God glorified, if you want to see your prayers answered, here's where you start. Use your power to honor your wife. As we show Jesus to each other in this way, as we invest in our marriages and love one another with this Christ-like love, our prayers will not be hindered and God will be glorified in our midst and among the people of this city.